Insider Insights. Coming up on today's show, we bring you the highlights from the Next Web Conference 2017 in Amsterdam. We have an amazing range of guests, including actual royalty, Prince Constantine of the Netherlands, who speaks to Aidan Davies about his new role as a special envoy for Startup Delta 2020. First up, though, we have Max Brensel, International Associate N26 on their plans for expanding into the UK, followed by Ben Hammersley of Wired about his views on AI and the impact it'll have on the jobs market. Enjoy the show. Hi, we're here with uh, Max Brensel from N26. Hi, Max, how are you doing? Nice to meet you. Uh, N26, we're obviously big fans of yours on Fintech Insider. How's it all going? It's going very well, yeah. We're uh, live in 17 countries, um, one of which is the Netherlands. Um, So we're here today to uh, get to know um, the people, the ecosystem, and um, very excited. Had much interest from visitors and startups so far? How well known is the brand in, in Holland? Um, quite well known actually yeah. we had a lot of people um, passing by who already know the product who already have an account um, very very positive feedback actually today um, and also already met some cool uh, cool companies that are exhibiting here okay interesting maybe potential partnerships or collaborations potentially yes okay cool and have you had, been having to do any customer service Unfortunately, uh, I I hadn't had to do any customer service. That's good. Um, Only positive feedback today. And have you seen any other interesting startups while you've been here or too busy working? Uh, We actually had a short delay, like getting in, flying in uh, this morning. Um, So I haven't had time to look around so much. But I've actually seen one of two uh, one or two companies from Berlin, um, like Grover, I think. Yes. um, Is also here, so their office is quite close to ours, and uh, so I also know them. And I have to ask you about when you guys are coming to the UK. A lot of fans, I guess, that would want you there soon. Um, Yeah, UK, obviously, very, very interesting market. Very exciting opportunity. Um, We don't have a concrete date, but we're looking to launch there next year. Great stuff. Thank you very much. Thank you. Brilliant, thanks. Uh, thank you very much for being with Ben Hammersley. Kind of fresh-ish off stage. Yeah. Lots of other interviews. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and a bit about your talk? That would be great. I am a long-standing internet person. I work as a futurist, so I help companies and organizations come up with scenarios for what's going to happen in the next few years and then to help them with their strategies. I was the executive editor of Wired magazine. I have a TV series on Netflix about cybercrime. I do lots of consulting. Like, Lots of tech stuff, and I spend a lot of my time on stages like this, jazz handing. Um, I'm here at the next web. This is, I think, I don't know, maybe the fourth or fifth time I've spoken at this conference over the past however long. Yeah. And how was your? What was your talk about? And how did it go? And so it was it's good. A quite a good. It's quite a good stage, isn't it? It's nice. It's a couple of thousand people. Um, it's a lovely stage. Yeah, it was good. It was a very short one where I was talking about the social effects of technology and specifically the sort of the shock effect of AI and how, as technologists, we have to be cognizant of the fear and the uncertainty that is being produced in society when things like AI. Uh, really start to mature and start to genuinely threaten people's livelihoods or threaten the society with upheaval. And so I was talking to them as, a, as an audience of technologists saying, look, you guys got to be cool with this. Yeah. So we spoke with uh, Mark over there, who's the head of Watson's platform. And yeah, I think uh, we had a lot of discussion about the singularity and this kind of point that we may or may not reach but as we are as we're onto that path we're kind of there's a lot of people talking about ai sure it's kind of ground in this this all-seeing all-powerful sure. thing but it's it's no it's not even as smart as a puppy yet is it is the no that's no 
and I think I think when we talk about AI, I think talking about the sort of all singing, all singing, all knowing, omnipresent, like how too much sci-fi canon. Yeah, I think if we think of AI as that, uh, we'll always be disappointed and we will miss the threat. We won't see. We'll be looking over there where the guy with a hammer is coming from behind us. Is is on the head, right? Because there are many, many, many human endeavors where a specialist AI as smart as a puppy is more than sufficient. And I think we're seeing this happening right now, as you know, right, inside the financial world. Financial services, I do a, a lot of work inside financial services companies because they are quite rightly realizing right now, or at least the smart ones are realizing right now, that if they don't adapt to the AI that, is, that exists today, never mind future stuff, but like, genuine stuff that you can buy today. If they don't adapt to that today, that AI will kill them dead imminently. Not in 10 years, 15, 20 years, but in like Q4 2018. You know what I mean? Like, like within a planable time frame. Because there are so many jobs and, and roles inside financial services and, and all professional services, which are, to be honest, not that difficult for a computer, but which are conversely, quite highly paid for humans. And bankers being bankers, if they can find a way to cut some costs to make more profit, and they, that means laying off those hundred dudes and replacing them with that one service from IBM, that shit's going down. But I guess uh, as an interesting corollary there that with you know societal impacts as you talked about, obviously banks can't close branches today, you know, without there being political uproar, certainly in the UK. No, I, I also and, and I'm intrigued about running. coming back to you know AI taking jobs is the sure. is the fear story, which is sure, sure. you know for decades since automation sure. automation began. But are we gonna get to a stage where we've talked a lot about compliance today, where we're gonna get lawyers and expensive professions kind of uprising against the machines? Possibly, because I think your example is the, is, the, is the wrong one, actually. We've gone through this period of automation taking jobs a few times. You know, when I was growing up in the 80s, it was all about automation and robotics taking welding and car fitter jobs, right? I grew up in the Midlands, and so there was like car plants in Derby shutting down because the robots were coming in and doing the welding themselves, right? Automation has always been taking the lowest collar, you know, the blue collar manual worker jobs. The AI automation revolution, especially in financial services, is starting at the top and working down, right? So the branch teller or the local bank manager whose job is mostly interpersonal and empathy based, you know, is psychosocial, those guys are fine. But your fund manager, who's paid X million a year for not really beating the market, those guys are not fine. Because our capability to do big data analysis has shown that the vast majority of fund managers don't beat the market. And so if you replace them with an AI that does, or just performs the same as the human does, then awesome. Right? You save those salaries, you save that corner office, you get rid of all of those people from the third floor, right? And this is happening already. We call them robo-advisors, and you read in the trade press, lots of people saying, ah, robo-advisors will never happen because you see, investing is a fundamental human <laughs> skill and it, it requires my insight to, to, you know, do investing. But of course, that's bullshit. <laughs> it's prime bullshit, right? And this is happening already. So fund managers, insurance is the same thing. You know, underwriting, no reason that's a human. None at all. Maybe at the complex level, sure. But low-grade underwriting, 
all going to the machine. And as the machines get smarter and smarter, the level of complexity they can handle rises and rises and rises. And so what we have at the moment is, a, is an AI like, tr like labor revolution, which is starting at the rich and working down rather than starting at the poor and working up. And that's why it's fundamentally hilarious, but also fundamentally really interesting because when I've given this sort of, you know, given an in-depth and technology, you know, and sort of citation-filled, you know, more seriously presented presentation about this, I can get red in tooth and claw merchant bankers to want to join a union within about an hour. <laughs> because at the end of it, they do get to this point of like, but surely some, we should be taking collective action. <laughs> like, well, yes. Yes, you're right. You should. And the TEC is awaiting for you, my brothers. But this is what I was talking about on stage here, is that when technolo once technology gets above a certain level, it becomes indistinguishable from politics. That we have to start to think about this as a, from its societal impact as well as its sort of awesomeness as, of, as, a, as a technological product. I guess one of the things, just going back, A, I've got a feeling that if any branch people are listening to you, they'll be like, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. I think it comes back to a point about uh, probably the hardest problem to solve is, is kind of computers being empathetic or being truly relatable. It is a, right. it is a human skill to right. relate to another human being. And I guess, right. again, with films like uh, Her, yeah. you know, again, sci-fi canon, it is... Humans being nice to each other is what's going to make you the most money in the future. That's nice. right. There was a great study done recently about which jobs have got the longest longevity. Like, which jobs we know aren't going to be disrupted. And it's people like nurses and teachers and hairdressers and think people like that whose job is both intellectual and psychomotor and psychosocial. Those people, their employment is pretty much guaranteed. But if you're a knowledge worker, so you sit at a desk, right, and, and some data comes in and you do something to it and then the data goes out. Whatever it is you do here, if that doesn't, if that's just really a flowchart of, of like, of secret knowledge that you've learned because you've gone and done your accountancy degree or you've done your law degree or something like that, and you're just applying the secret knowledge to move it onto the next stage, then you're, medium to long term, pretty screwed because Secret knowledge applied to data is just cries out to be turned into an algorithm and turned into something that an AI can do. Uh, I guess uh, your comment about you know, software being indistinguishable from politics, then obviously lots of talk about bias in AI, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Uh, racism being baked into AI because it's white people creating this technology. And I guess one of the aspects to that is kind of transparency and therefore of it, you know algorithms, uh, neural networks, what, what, what are these things doing? And it's, assuming, how, do you, how do you explain that and visualize that? Yes, absolutely. But that's assuming that anybody cares. And you could say the same thing about any human-driven system, that, we should, that they should also be equally as transparent, and they're kind of not. So, I think from a financial services point of view, from a regulator point of view, we're going to get to an interesting point where... Yeah. Why did you decide to give Ben that loan? That you just, you, yeah. you know, you, 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 today you've got to make that decision of why you gave it to you, and, and if, if you can't, you know. So really this, is a, this is a problem with a lot of the AI that is appearing at the moment is that we don't really know how it works. One of the dark secrets about a lot of the different AI techniques is that once you've built the system and it's evolved and evolved and evolved and evolved on its own, 
and there are plenty of AIs that where you can look inside, but there's no idea, there's no way you'll know how it works. Um, so yeah, from a regulatory point of view, who knows? Because that's potentially a way of like the white, you know, the white collar at the top of the organisation. Ah, oh, can't do it. We have yeah. to stop this. Sorry. It's not. It's not safe. Uh, so final question then: yeah. um, What would a futurist want from a bank? What would the bank of the future for you look like? What would you want? I would like to be able to script as in use a, as as in use a simple programming language my current account. So I would like to be able to even like a you know like email rules, you know, if something arrives from this person then do this, right? I want that on my bank account. I've so long been saying why banks haven't just plugged into the service if this then that. Because yes. just it's just yes. activities around Yes, this thing has happened yes. over here. It, I want to be notified over here, or I wanted to make thing X happen over here. Yes. It's such a simple thing to do, yes. but nobody's done it. Nobody's done it. And it's, it's that sort of thing, to understand that really they are data providers more than anything else. Yeah. And if you have data providers, I should be able to take that data and do stuff with it. And there are only certain things you can do to a bank account. There's only, you, know, you put things in, you take things out. So I should have access to those verbs as well. If you allow me to do that, then I'll do cool stuff. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time, Ben. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks to Ben. Next up, we have Boris Valhusian van Zanten, CEO and co-founder of this very event, TNW 2017, talking about the next web and what we can look forward to in 2018, followed by Mark Tierlink, Chief Business Strategist at IBM. Boris, thank you very much for taking time to say hello. Uh, you are the co-founder of the Next Web. You are the reason this massive, amazing festival is happening. How is it going? It's going great. Uh, tranquilo, somebody said. Okay, what does that so, mean? Tranquilo means uh, smooth, relaxed. It's all going well. That's good. Relaxed. It's all zen. Is that so. just you relaxed, or are all your staff running around like crazy? Or? No, I, I think one compliment we got, I think two or three years ago, was uh, somebody from another conference uh, who said. I've never been to a conference where the organization itself isn't freaking out. Uh, but at your conference, everybody's walking around with a smile on their face. And I think we have a small team that's very good in delegating stuff and organizing it well. So we have 250 crew uh, and they handle everything. So by the time it's all organized, we can sort of relax a little bit and enjoy the show as well. Well, we've been having a brilliant time. Obviously, we've been trying to interview people, but the food is amazing, the beer is great, the weather has stayed okay so far, <laughs> so, so yeah. it's all very good. So, um, we're from a fintech show. What is the scene like in Amsterdam, startup-wise, yeah. uh, I guess large companies as well, financial services? Yeah, How's it yeah look? I think uh, the Netherlands is a strong banking industry. We have a few banks that are known worldwide, operate worldwide. And I think that says something about the Dutch uh, ecosystem as well. We are a very small country with a small home market. Yep. So pretty much every startup that launches here uh, thinks worldwide from the start. So if you look at a company like uh, Agen, which is now a billion dollar yep. uh, payments uh, company, yeah, very started big. Very big. in Amsterdam, I found out two weeks ago that we were probably the oldest client they have. So we were uh, client number three or four, but all the other companies don't exist anymore. We're still around. Okay. So that's a very cool thing. Um, and that also says something about the conference where you know, we have all these companies when they're still very small and we give them a, a podium, an audience, yep. and then we grow with them as they uh, mature. So 
uh, I think because we have a lot of banks that has an influence on the fintech and, uh, industry, and we have a, a whole lot of them. Yeah, I mean, we saw N26 in one of the startup tents. They were a great German startup, and they were on the pitch battle arena, and they were kind of being, you know, they're a company that had a little little booth over there, but they, those guys are 17 countries and doing well. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and I guess, is there anything specific you're looking forward to from the conference today? Any great speakers that you've, like, the first time you've managed to get them here? Or? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was looking forward to uh, the strategic... Uh, manager at uh, Snapchat. He spoke earlier. Uh, this is, of course, a company that you know it's, it's so inter- it's, it's almost like a Hollywood movie playing out in slow motion. I mean, for the internet industry, it's it's fast, but over the years with Facebook and how Instagram is now competing, it's, it's just an amazing. Well, I find, I find Snapchat an amazing company in the fact that they're so innovative, did things so differently. But now you've got a giant like Facebook just just blatantly copying them, and it's, it's and incredible. It, and in, in our industry, it's it, uh, the banks. We say, "Oh, here are these startups. Are they just creating features for the big guys to copy?" Do you, what, what do you think about that? Is it is it right? Is it well? So, in my experience, most banks are very conservative. They're slow, uh, and I, I think there's. So, when I talk to them about innovation. I don't feel like they're really committed yet. A few exceptions inside. But mostly when you speak to a bank, they're like, oh, we got to innovate too, as if it's a, a check mark on their PR plan. A, like, a department or... Yeah, it's like, well, you got to innovate because that's apparently the thing you got to do. But they don't see the, the competition, the risk. In my opinion, um, you know, I'm waiting for a startup that's going to change everything, sort of like Tesla or Netflix, where you see that the innovation doesn't come from within the industry, it's always an outsider. And banks, you know, banking is such a closed system, it's so regulated, it's much harder to be a disruptor. But in Europe, there are now new rules where every bank has to open up yes, an API. So this is something I look forward to tremendously. So yeah, it's a, a subject we're following very closely, uh, you know, the, the banks being forced to open up, provide APIs, yeah, the effectively become yeah. platform players, and that's going to be interesting to see if they can have the yeah. shift to say, hey, we build a platform for others to build on, or we're going to plug into other platforms, and that's a different thing. Can you can you see them making that shift to platform businesses versus we own everything? Or Well, that's the thing. Um, I remember talking to um, a UPC, uh, and they said, we own the, 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 the network, so why didn't we invent Google? And to them, it's almost felt like they were cheated out of something, because they said, we own the access. Why didn't we... We're smart, <laughs> and so historically, if you look at banks, if you want to predict based on history, and we never learn from history, but still, if you would, and the chances are slim that, so yeah, like the chances are higher that they're gonna just be the sort of the, the dumb high infrastructure yeah. in the back. It's, it's no bad thing if you can make great infrastructure. You look at Amazon Web Services; yeah. it's a huge, amazing business, but they they understand how to make great infrastructure that. You know, hundreds and hundreds of companies that are at your event yeah. just just use them to build because oh, why would you make yeah. it yourself? Yeah, someone's yeah. making it better. So, yeah. yeah. No, but there's a humility when you talk to Amazon, and there's a certain arrogance when you talk to a bank. That's interesting. Some banks, not all. Yeah, no, 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 I agree. But I worked yeah. at one for 17 years. Yes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that's that's something that I think needs to change, and and it's not going to change out of itself. So there's going to be probably a crisis where. Probably an innovative startup is going to figure something out where suddenly the banks are caught and are like, oh my god, now we're missing out. And then things are going to change more rapidly. Yeah. Just a quick last question on kind of Amsterdam then. I've seen the digital marketing 
the, the, the other dome just seems ram packed. Is yeah. is Amsterdam more of a kind of a digital content marketing kind I of think city? It's a bit or of both. Yeah, I, I think, uh, and you you gotta remember that uh, I think maybe 40, 30 percent of the attendees is from the Netherlands, and we have 70 countries, yes. like people from 70 countries. So, uh, but I think it is a whole topic. Uh, marketing is, is much more important than it used to be. In fact, marketing used to be a detail, like that was would be one of the departments. And these days we talk to companies that say marketing is, is just like innovation. Every employee needs to think about marketing, like this is it's almost a starting point. Yeah. And at Amazon they went that far where they say we're going to start with the press release. So before they yeah, start building a product, they start with the press release and they work their way back from that. And that's sort of customer-centric thinking that I think more people now start to adopt and that's why these things are popular here. I hope we start to see some banks think like that. Boris, thank you very much for taking the time. It's a brilliant event. Thank you very much. Enjoy thank you. I'm here with Mark Teerling from IBM, Chief Business Strategist of IBM Watson. Hello. Hi. Uh, thanks for joining us for a little chat. Can you just tell us a little bit about your role working on, uh, on Watson? Um, my team does two things. The first is that they set the strategy, the business strategies for, so not for, not just for developers, but for enterprises, companies that want to use Watson. Watson is an AI platform, it's made for business, it's, it has multiple AI capabilities that intentions for businesses to solve problems that they normally weren't able to yep. take out. So what my team does is one part sets the strategy, say what does it mean, what are the needs, what are the opportunities we see in a market, and then mix it back to what have we invented in research. So my other team basically says, how do we take these inventions in research, bring it to a closed product to test, from a prototype to development to offering management to go to market. Basically in one line, my other team does all the new cool crazy stuff. So uh, obviously we're a banking show and I believe you have a banking background and Watson has been applied across a few banking right. uh, problems. Where is it today? Where do you see it going for so, banks? So, so there are three things I see today Watson being applied already in banking. One is a virtual agent. That's not the same as a chatbot because a chatbot is a frequent asked question. A virtual agent basically uses intents for a dialogue and is trained first by IBM and then specifically by a bank that's their training, it's also their competitive data, not ours, in how they would solve a problem in a dialogue with a very clearly defined handover moment to a human being, that's one. Second is, um, we call this profiling, tell me everything about a business customer, what's happening, what's the S&P, what was the SAC filing, yep. so how do you more rapidly get a better profile for account management, for M&A, for investment purposes, and have a better informed view. That could be wealth management, that could be investment, could be M&A advice. You want to do that because one, account managers and bank stay for two, three years in that position and change. So you want to keep all the memory, plus the second thing, it takes hours to make such a research, especially if your client isn't qualified. So how do you qualify your most valuable account managers in their time, in lowering the time and resource and giving them more client facing time. The third, what we're focusing on, and this is something we create as a platform, as a capability, and other partners, including IBM's Watson Finance Division, will work on that. That's the ability to compare documents semantically. So not just an inference like you do with, I have multiple questions lead to one answer. Not like a discovery, I have 20 documents, can I find a connection? But can I take two documents, read one, let's take financial regulatory, uh, Dot Frank, right? 
in the United States, our banks have 90,000, 20,000 people that are lawyers, seven years to school, college, law school, and bar. And all they do is they copy dot frank in a column, then they copy their terms and conditions from the app in the next column, and then they classify what controls, like privacy or whatever it is. So for instance, if dot frank says, all financial apps must have a safe password, I need to figure out what that clause is, then I need to figure out the definition of a safe password, what sensitive information is, copy that in the spreadsheet, and then store that and go to the next. It, compliance lawyers are the white collar workers in the United States with the highest suicide rate, <laughs> according to a study last year. So, all we do with Watson, we don't take that person's job away, we augment them and say, can we take four to six hours of copy and pasting, parsing a document, recognizing what this clause is and what it means, and if I find in the other document a match or a conflict, and, and just keep in mind legally, a comma difference is the difference between a disclaimer and an exclusion. Giving that to them, then giving it back to them and say, dude, you are the expert. You now need to apply it. What it would mean, surely, is that not so much as you could call safe costs on compliance laws. It means as a financial institute, you can manage risk much better. You can cover your full compliance instead of a sample. You can do much better what-ifs. When Brexit happens, which of my documents, which of my compliance, which of my conditions will directly be hit, which of my contracts will be hit, which of the app conditions need I need to change. The other thing is it's going to make your and my life better. Because I don't know about you, but when I get an app and it has 193 pages to, of terms and conditions, of course we'll oh, read them, right? You could condense that back to eight or nine pages if somebody just had the time to say, this is the same, this is redundant, this is the same, and this is what we do. So artificial intelligence, in my word, for banks, isn't necessarily a cost-saving. It's a value creator with the opportunity to make the best talented human capabilities available and get the mind-numbing repetitive part out. You know, RPA, we talk about automation, kind of condensing that, that process and getting rid of the, the bureaucracy, the time consumption, allowing highly skilled people to be more skilled rather than, like you say, Indeed. cut and paste. Indeed. I mean, if you if you are a lawyer, you, you, you love the law, and you love regulatory, and you, you have a passion for finance, or you're an accountant, or an actuary, you studied all these years to do your profession, and 90% of the day what you do is heavy lifting. So all I'm saying is let the robots do the heavy lifting, let the humans do the creative thinking. Because it's the problem-solving capability that thinks out of the box without training data, without data sets up front, is really makes human professionals great. So in, in that, I think there is, there is no benefit for ultimate cost-saving only. We've seen financial institutions that cut costs and cut costs in the end. They lost the human connection with it. Now, that doesn't mean that I always want to talk about my bank on the weather. But when something happens, I want to have, a, like with a medical doctor, I want to have yep. a feeling that you understand my situation. So I guess, obviously, a lot of talk at the moment about, you know, AI's real future, rather than we've just seen Chris come off stage, yep. you know, the Skynet definition, but AI as, a, as an aid slash an improvement to human cognition, human ability, right. is, is, that, is that part of the goal for Watson's so, platform? So, so our vision is, and which I will handle my speech as well, if you really want to monetize AI, especially in the financial industry, you take a process you know really well. You take one step out of it that has a lot of heavy lifting and reading, comparing, and you replace it with AI. That's the moment you have augmented a human professional or a consumer with an incredible boring part where you mostly will make yep. mistakes because you don't know it. I really believe that intelligent augmentation is where 
AI allows humans to be more human and brings the human, human back into the process. Are there processes that there are candidates for full automation? Yes. But not necessarily by AI. There are always processes that, like the mechanical industrial revolution, that are so repetitive and needs to be so precise that a machine in a repetitive process could do it. But only in situations that you are sure you don't need to change the flexibility. Rule-based engine, data science, great. You have a continuously perpetual change, like take the regulatory changes in the EU and America at this moment. You might want to have machine learning that continuously adapts instead of a hardcore program. that And in that adaption, you want something else. Think of the European transparency that's, that May 2018. You want technology to show what was I thinking when I gave you that advice? Yeah. What sources did I do? And then there's a human being that says, I'm going to make that decision. And there's a lot of ethics that I'd rather have a human being do than a technology part. I mean, I'm interested in, I think, regulation potentially where it's heading. There'll be some financial products that you, you can't sell without a computer system, you kind of, as well as like an audit process, but just are humans, do we, of like you're saying, one missing comma, it means something completely different. It, we get it, to a point where yeah. we need an AI to sell certain products. I, 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 de- I definitely think that we're going to, in five years from now, all important decisions we will take in life, all important decisions that need to be informed, yep. getting a mortgage, choosing the right college together with your kids, having a medical treatment, all of those important decisions will be AI-infused, AI-enabled, AI-supported. We kind of mentioned the, the B word, Brexit. kind of think... Can we not just feed what's in a load of information and say what's going to happen post-Brexit? Will they not be able to give me the answers of, you know, we so, all think it's going to be an absolute so, so, disaster. So, 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 you, no, so you really come to a very, very interesting thing there where data science and machine learning are still overestimated. They cannot predict the future if they don't have data sets that allow it. They can come up with scenarios that you and I can pick, but it's not a Star Trek-like computer tell me what's going to happen. Even in Star Trek Kirk ask the computer for free scenarios what's going to happen when he meets the Klingons or the Romulans. So yes, we could have different Watson capabilities and say these are the data facts, this has happened in other financial, but this is a unique situation where we have limited data available, but a lot of, as we saw with the election and the referendum, the election in the state and the referendum in the UK showed, there was a lot of irrational voting part, or even the polls failed. AI and data science is as good as a better speed. Let me give you a real nice bridge example. In the 40s, Percy Spencer, everybody knows who Percy Spencer is. I don't know who Percy Spencer is. Percy, Percy Spencer was an engineer for REF. Okay. He worked on the radar. Oh, yeah. He's sitting Sorry. in a room this Sorry. size, all by him alone, and because he's an engineer, he gets a bar of chocolate a month. And suddenly he sees his bar of chocolate melting, and he's working with radio microwaves. Percy figured out with one data point that there was out of the, ra- the radar a totally different opportunity to heat food yep. with microwaves. No data science model or no AI would make that conclusion. And that's what I mean, like we need to relieve, like architects went from slide rules to calculators. Didn't make ba- architects bad, didn't give up their job. Just made good architects really allowed to be more beautiful building than our concrete 60s designs. And we'll see that in many professions. In the United States alone, if you are, God forbid, are diagnosed with cancer, 20% of the people diagnosed are eligible for clinical trial. Less than 5% can get matched because it takes a medical doctor and their staff 160 to 180 hours. 
So AI today, as we use it, like in Memorial Sloan Kettering, is not replacing the doctor, it's augmenting them with a sidekick that takes up that task. And I really think if we really want to look at a future in fintech, that's also an interesting future for mankind, we should focus on the processes where the robots do the heavy lifting, the processing, some automations, and the humans actually take focus on the benefits of the benefits that they can do now. Last question then, uh, we talked a little bit, we just mentioned before uh, the singularity, Chris mentioned it in his speech, yes. and I think you said you, you disagreed with uh, Mr. Kurzweil's yeah, yeah, no, no, no. definition of singularity, where do you think we are headed ultimately, so, let's so, think 10, 20, so however for, many years So out. first is, I, I, I'm a fan of Larray, and I think he and his team are doing phenomenal work. That doesn't mean we always need to have the same opinion, right? Um, I think, for instance, smartphone technology from 2007 to 2010 showed how fast humanity can adopt the technology. But 2010-2015 also showed how fast technology improved and how fast we had to trade in. So already I'm concerned about implants because implants need upgrades. And as long as these upgrades need hardware upgrades. I don't think that everybody says every six months, I'd like to have a new phone, could you cut open my wrist? So then there's alternatives to tell. We go to wearable devices, you know, they're close to my skin, they pack my thing. And I'm like, that's true. And I think we will be much closer to aided decision-making and a data sphere around us. But you know, I love the GPS of my car. I love the 17-inch screens it has. But when I drive out of Washington, D.C., where I live, and I come into the beautiful nature park of Shenandoah, I have no signal. I have no <laughs> GPS. And I need to use my knowledge of the map, my comfort in driving in the unknown, and enjoy it. And as long as people still can go at sea and realize that if the GPS is out of battery, they need to have the skills to make it to the other side, I think singularity is never going to come to that point. But what I really think is the biggest challenge going to be is the ethics. And, and let me give you the San Francisco dilemma. You drive in a beautiful electric car here in Amsterdam, self-thinking, yep. self-driving, and links at the left of your channel are vans. And at the right, you know, where there's poles are in Amsterdam, is a van. And behind one van comes an older lady, and at the other van comes a young kid. You won't have physical time enough to break, you'll hit them. What's the car supposed to do? The car couldn't see them. Yep. So the car, is the car going to take the EMR, scenario one, of the old lady says, 97 years old, three months to go, less risk. It's gonna take the kid, says, well, the kid is two years old, will be a trick break, heals in two months, almost no mental trauma, let's do that. Or it's gonna say, let's just push this van in the canal, not knowing if there's someone sitting in it, bring the electrical car in the water, electrocute the driver, because that's the cheapest scenario for the insurance company. That car won't make the decision until somebody says, this is how you handle. The manufacturer is not going to make the decision yeah. because they don't want to be liable. The owner is going to be very careful because he or she is not going to be liable. And the government is probably going to come with the greater good of us all, which we as drivers not, might not want to have. That's going to take politically much more years than negotiating a treaty out of it. And then we kind of come back full circle to the compliance guys, the lawyers, right. who's going to say, what did the algorithm choose? How, yes. how, how, how did it make its decision? Yes. Can you show me that? And yes. I guess, uh, you know, yeah. How do we see what right. these machines are thinking in the future is going to become? I, what I do think is that humanity, that's what they call the San Francisco problem, tram comes down the hill, the might, problem, yeah. might, might hit 10 people. 
if somebody jumps off the bridge, he will save 10, but he will go. Everybody agrees that person should do it. Unless you ask them, would you be that? Yeah. And my, the, how near we are to singularity is mankind's willingness to make the slider to say one should really go for men. If people really are willing to do that, then we are also going to embrace to make the decision for us. If people are not willing to do that, and I count on the same emotion that drive banking, selfishness, greed and fear, um, I think that point will be longer. But it's good to be aware, because if we're not aware, we let it happen. So. Mark, great to talk to you. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for the, pro good luck the program. The Financial Times guides you through complex issues. In divisive times, don't settle for black and white. When you need the full perspective, turn to FT.com. Become a subscriber today. Search for FT subscription. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Coming up next is Royal Highness Prince Constantine of the Netherlands, talking about the very up-and-coming Dutch fintech scene, followed by Rashma Sahoni, co-founder of SeedCamp, and Catherine Myronuk, the Synthesis and Convergence faculty lead at Singularity University, discussing the fantastic work they do. Thanks for joining David Constantine, the startup envoy for the Netherlands. Uh, how's it been? Uh, no, it's been great. I think... Uh, we, uh, we're not too fortunate with the weather. Yes, yeah, the rain is uh, just about held yeah, off. Yeah, but what I like really is, it is a, it's, a, it's a festival. Um, it's really about people meeting, so there's a lot of space to meet. It's not, uh, it's not so transactional. It's not, not everybody just comes here only to, to make a deal, but you make a deal and, and meet people. And I think the crowd is very diverse, so uh, yeah, it's been good. Yep. So what is your, what is your role? How are you trying to encourage the startup ecosystem across the uh, entire Holland? Yeah, so the role is, bit, is, is in one hand creating a very positive momentum around entrepreneurship, around innovation uh, and connecting, connecting people. Um, Netherlands is a very mature economy where everything is very organized and sometimes if you want to innovate you need to open up things again. Um, so um, I try to get people together to think a bit bigger and uh, look a bit further. So we are a fintech show. We are interested in how banks change. Yes. Uh, do you do a lot of work with the? Obviously, you've got some very large banks in this country, ING, ABN, etc. And as I've just heard, you know, kind of a blossoming fintech scene. Yeah, we have a lot, especially in payments, uh, and then in in the link of security. We have uh, the whole blockchain community is coming up with Dutch Chain, which is really trying to to um, take uh, take the technology to uh, to all different domains. So yeah, we have that. We have obviously the, the, the banks. I think all the banks have acknowledged that uh, innovation is absolutely critical, and also working together with uh, with, with startups to uh, to bring that innovation within the within the banking system. 
That's great to hear. I mean, uh, I guess, how is it going? Because we, I mean, this, this festival is amazing. Holland itself seems to be a very attractive uh, destination with a certain country committing Brexit suicide. Yeah, yeah. Are you looking to attract more great talent to this country? Yeah, yeah we are. I think big banks is different, is different than fintech. I think we have, uh, we have a lot of talent here and we have, it's a, it's a really nice place to, uh, to be, to live. There are big banks that can, they're good to interact with. Uh, attracting the big banks to come here is a different issue. So they might look at Frankfurt, they might look at other yeah. markets. Uh, but we definitely, uh, we definitely do want to also be a play in that game. And uh, but uh, we are more interested actually that uh, that that the UK and London stays really well connected. Um, you know, they're our biggest trading partner. Yeah. So I think it's uh, it's in everybody's interest that uh, London stays strong and that we are well connected with London. So this kind of idea that we should be pulling out, you know, all these fintechs or, or financial institutions all to come here. I think uh, let's focus on uh, on creating good environment for business, and that's in London, that's here, that's in Frankfurt. So. Right, so. right, thank you very much for your time. Good. Thank, thank you. you. Good Goodbye. See you. Uh, hello, Reshma Sahone from co-founder of Seedcamp. Yes. Thank you very much for taking some time to talk with us. Nice to be here. How's it going? It's going good. We're kind it's of just fresh out of a panel. Exactly. So, uh, what was your panel about? Let's talk about that. I mean, we were talking. You know, it's an entrepreneur stage, and we were talking a lot about how entrepreneurs can attract the attention of VCs. And we were uh, we were of different stages. So we're seed stage. There were you know Excel, which is more A and B, and then um, Atomico, which is even further along. So it was it was quite you know it was, it was great to have such different kind of viewpoints around. And we talked a lot about scaling businesses, what the right kind of talent pool to attract you know investment money is, and to grow those unicorns and decacorns and and whatnot. So you made an interesting point about uh, you know quite easy once you've got to a million in revenue, go from there. Well, no, so I, yeah, it's, it's, it's all about, you know, the, the context, right? I guess what I was trying, really trying to get across is a lot, what I see a problem with a lot of our startups that don't make it, either they, they then shut down or they become almost like a lifestyle business, is they don't hit their one million, yep. either revenue or users, real fast enough. Okay. It just takes them too long to get to that point. If, if and when they do, the momentum has carried away from them. So the competitors have gone you yep. know, well past them or the market's evolved and their product is no longer a fit for the market. Hence, I say, the real push is in that early time, if you, get, if you can clear the 1M mark, yep. your growth from there is, a, is more kind of more straightforward and yeah, it's just easier in that sense. Nothing yep. is ever easy. It's just that the, that kind of crucial milestone. Yep. Yeah. And I guess uh, fintech, you guys, you know, you are quite heavily involved in fintech. You are based in London. Yes. How is yeah? How is fintech looking at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, it's really interesting space right now because I think there's so much hype in it versus when we actually did a lot of those seed deals and investments that was between five years ago and and the last year. Yep. So we made multiple bets across the fintech value chain or the uh, the fintech sector as such. So I think, you know, for us, it's gotten the bar. I mean, it was always high, but it's ever higher um, because there's much more hype in it, which attracts a lot of inauthentic, you know, kind of founders and talent and, and so forth. So we're being quite careful about who we back. And, and there's a lot more me too's because it's such a big market and it's monetizable early. You get a you, yeah, you get that kind of flow towards it. And does that also? I mean, I'm interested in that hype in that the big banks are also kind of they want some of that yes that halo glow kind of thing from it. Do you see them, you know, encroaching on your territory, or do you see them kind of coming to partner with you and say, okay, who's good? 
Yeah, um, I, we see a we see a bit of both. Um, I you know I still think if if you believe in kind of the you know where the latest trends are, culture eats strategy for for breakfast and such. I think the culture is still you know top down is is still almost superficial level of adoption of technology and innovation and i think until that fundamentally changes at at the bank level and it's hard right it's hard I, we we get it like you have millions of users you have certain systems you have infrastructure you have people and it's hard to change from all of that um to a world that that is almost counter you know to to all of it so we get it but i think yeah until i think until there's really deep change there you know we're not yeah, we, we just we, we just spoke with Boris and we say that is it just surface level innovation? Is it just an innovation team, or we've got a VC fund and we're yeah. kind of investing in stuff to do the business? But whether they've got that real long term focus is, remains to be seen. Yeah, and, and and similarly for startups, I think back to kind of your previous question about what we're what I think about fintech is it is growing up, it's scaling up. Um, you know, you have a huge fragmentation with all different kind of use cases. So yes, it's, there is a level of service level. But real, clearly, consumers want better service. So, but I always do think that you always start with the low-hanging fruit, and you go deeper, you know, beneath that. So I think the the next stage of innovation in more core banking and and backend and real kind of again technology infrastructure change, you know, is yep. coming. And I think that the ransomware attacks, you know, and uh, with, with NHS and and obviously other other victims. You know, show a lot about using very old technology, right? And what you leave yourself open to. And oh, uh, the ATMs still run on Windows XP, is the so yeah, right? So, did Mikko, you just say that? <laughs> well, Miko on his talk, he showed oh, right. some from uh, China. A, right. a whole bank of ATMs, wanna cry screens everywhere. Wow. Um, yeah. So just going back to the infrastructure point, then I guess uh, are there any companies that you guys have invested in who are kind of you know? further away from the consumer, really, more bank tech? Yeah, no, good question. Um, a natural question, obviously. We do have more companies, you know, tackling sort of uh, risk and, and insurance products and, and some pretty, you know, hefty, complex products. That said, um, we haven't done as much on the kind of B2P, B2B enterprise or SaaS um, in core banking. Yeah. It is something we're looking at much more probably than I would say maybe consu- the consumer side where we made those early bets and now it's a lot about scaling the, you know, the Revoluts, the Moniz, the Curves, TransferWise's yep. of, of our of portfolio. TransferWise announcement this week, they're profitable after six years. Yes. Uh, they're 100 million in revenue this yes. year. Yes, yes. They're kind of obviously one of the, the big stars of fintech in general as well as London. Yeah, and, and you know, I think uh, it, it was great for them to come out with that with that statement um, it, it, it's it's been something obviously you know we as investors have, have, have been close to for a while I, I think people had such you know there was there was some negativity around are they just burning through a lot of cash right and uh, it in a way, it was almost good to have have that because you know come out with that statement and it. it and, they've, and they've long been dismissed. I remember being at a startup competition where they came second, and they were clearly the best by a mile. But it was a startup competition voted for by bankers whose business they were just clearly right, just. Right, right. They'll just say, "Well, we could move money around the world. What's so interesting about that?" But brand, you know, 
experience. So, just doing something different that yeah. people just changing the way, change your behaviors, I guess. I mean, it's really funny. I have, a, I have a Citibank account and I have it in multiple currencies. But even for transfers from my dollar to my pound account, I'll use TransferWise rather than Citibank to Citibank because they, they won't they still won't offer me the service for a better rate, right? And I'm a customer with you know two currencies in 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 your business. It doesn't cost anything to give me a better service. But there are so many challenges on there just to get really understand what we said what you said before that there's all these ta- uh, companies attacking these little niches. Yes. Yes. And it's like. A lot of these things you could fix yourself. A bit of service design, a bit yep. of empathy, challenge a few old business models, and I guess yep. that's... And, and I think a lot of these uh, services will come together, and they will partner with each other. They will, you know, they will find the ways where it's a win-win, and they don't have legacy infrastructure to worry about in terms of, well, we do this, so we don't yep. really want to partner with you or, or such. And, I mean, the other thing is, you know, you, you, I heard on a panel the other day um, someone from ING, a big, big Dutch bank, saying, you know, if, if, you look at, if you look at the biggest hotel chain in the world, has no hotels, right? You look at the biggest transportation business, has no car, owns no cars. And their view is the biggest banks in the world in the future will own no sort of balance sheets. And uh, so it's, it, it brings up, you know, yep. uh, it's a, that's an exciting idea for be. us and who we're backing. Probably quite stressful for the banks out there. 11 FS are here to help with us. Um, any stars in your kind of, your company's portfolio, FinTech-wise, you want to shout Yeah, I mean, I, well? I, I kind of did, you know, did, yeah. uh, did plug them in before those, you know, pull up, um, Revolut, Moniz, Curve are really sort of, you know, TransferWise is there already. Um, but again, in the risk side, a company called Crowd Process is really kind of gain, gaining stream as well. Um, but, you know, and Property Partner, which is sort of fintech and prop tech, yep. which is an amazing, uh, you know, amazing combination thereof. So a f- bunch of exciting businesses. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. I'm joined here with Catherine Myronic. Can you yes. tell us a little bit more about Singularity University and your great talk from yesterday? Oh, thank you. Yes, I teach at Singularity University. I was on the founding team of this place nine years ago. We're a non-traditional education organization where we believe, and not just believe, but we've shared by example, that if you bring people together from around the world, right, different geographical locations, but most importantly, different backgrounds, that a really interdisciplinary international group working together is going to come up with new and better solutions to the big problems. We create an environment where this is going to happen. So in a lot of ways, we're using the tools of entrepreneurship and innovation for the big, big problems. Clean water, access to energy, access to education. So yesterday you gave a few examples of people designing better rocket parts, etc., etc. What are some great examples of the kind of work where the practices that you're teaching are really starting to bear fruit. So Silicon Valley itself started this way. The people who are building the first integrated circuits, the first startup like I talked about yesterday, the tools that they used came from filmmaking, came from glass blowing. The eight of them, some of them had never really worked with transistors before, but because they had this very open attitude, very collaborative attitude, and being able to say, look, the tools that we use could come from anywhere. Don't let it be predefined by experts. They came up with an entirely new industry. I think this is true over and over again, and what we'll talk about fintech is exactly proof of this. But I talked about satellites, right? Satellites used to be something that if you wanted to innovate in satellites, you had to be the satellite company. And it changed very slowly, and they cost $500 million. What's different today is people saying, look, what if we take solar panels, put them on a cell phone, send them up there, 
and suddenly instead of a you know five hundred million dollar satellite, we've got a hundred thousand dollar satellite. And so innovation is being done by startups. You're not waiting for Lockheed or for a government to do it. And I guess it's, it's, it's about those pieces becoming available and access and access to education, and then obviously the web kind of connecting yeah. us all. And, and it's really about attitude, saying like, what is the problem we're trying to solve, and can we creatively reuse technologies that are all around us? And I think fintech is, going to, is showing exactly this, in that 20, 30 years ago, if you wanted to innovate in finance and money, you, bid, you had to be the bank, you had to be the central bank or the government. Now that you have these new technologies coming from different areas, you know, access to security technology, and of course access to things like blockchain, people are saying, well, wait a minute, we're seeing this problem, we want to solve it, okay, let's, let's go solve it. I think you were talking about diverse backgrounds as well. People who maybe aren't from the industry, just they, they're just thinking in a different way. They see the problem in a different way. They don't have that kind of legacy thinking. It's like, okay, well, I just think this should work like this today because all these layers of technology and services and software exist. Uh, but a lot of the banks just don't think like that. You know. I, I talked about yesterday failure modes of expertise, and there's a lot of failure modes of expertise. And of course, we should celebrate expertise. But if you've been doing something for more than a few years, and of course you can be an expert in your own company, and start, you, 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 you get set in your ways. It, it's a fairly human characteristic. It takes work to get your mindset out of that. One way to get your mindset out of that, again, is, is working with other people from other fields. Because when you walk, come up to them and you're very naively saying, hey, I have a suggestion for you. Have you thought about trying this? They might have an allergic reaction to it because they're not used to it. But you've practiced saying it. Once you practice saying that, it becomes easier for you to hear it when it's coming from the outside. And then the next step is you, you not only learn to hear it, you start to invite it. And I think that, kind of just going back into like, say, innovation of, of old, so kind of talking about the creation of the transistor, I think to, I'm fascinated by like places like Bell Labs, you know, yes. where that kind of, A, they would hire people from all kinds of backgrounds, you know, academics as well as engineering, put them in a space together, a, a collaboratively designed building, and kind of gave them a lot of money and funding and thorny problems. But today, innovation is more like a, oh, we've got an innovation team, or we've done a hackathon, and it's, it's on the surface, it's not that, that real deep. Yeah, you have to give people time to practice innovation. So, for example, I've seen it sometimes companies say, will say, we're going to do innovation now. And they say, okay, we're going to choose the innovation team. All right, you four, you're, you're the exciting people. You're going to do innovation. You know that means that you're saying everybody else is boring. And a lot of times people don't realize, it. I mean, first of all, it sort of it insults everybody, but it also means you think you know what you need. And by definition, really good innovation, asking questions on the edge, you shouldn't be able to predict who you need. Now, if you're doing improvement to an existing product and all of the conversation about innovation, fine, you know who you need. But, for example, you, people might say, well, why would we want the people in accounting? You know, there's not supposed to be innovation in accounting. And I, I would say to them, this happened recently, I said, well, all right, maybe they're not going to come up with a new way of doing accounting, but maybe Chris in accounting just noticed that there's this employee who worked on eight different teams last year. And they're starting to say, okay, that's interesting. What is Chris doing cross-pollinating these teams? An accountant might pick up on a very valuable yeah. employee that that employee themselves might not know that what they were doing was interesting. So even though the accountant has just contributed five minutes of innovation for the year, it could be a critical five minutes. 
and you don't know unless you ask. Yeah, and, uh, I think from my background as well is how do you find the real problems? It's not like, oh, I know the solution, here's some fancy new technology. How do I find the really, really interesting problems or even problems that people might not even perceive as problems? Yeah, one of the things that goes on nowadays, I, uh, I call it, a, you know, others have called it, having a, a why conversation instead of a how conversation. And it's like, why are we trying it this way? Not, this is how we're going to do it. Because how conversations tend to get very technical very quickly. And it's very much a yes, no, I agree, I don't agree. The why conversations, that's where people start saying, you know, when it comes to satellites again, how are we getting this reliability? We're spending $200 million and putting equipment up that's going to last for 25 years. If you start saying, well, why? Then it comes up to like, why? Well, you need continuous coverage. Well, you can get continuous coverage from one very expensive device or hundreds of ridiculously inexpensive devices. By having that, that why way of thinking, you're saying, okay, look, you get the same effect for a fraction of the price. And now satellites have become very much a Silicon Valley, not using that as shorthand, but they've gone into this startup entrepreneurship space rather than just being in the very, very large company space. I guess, like you said, the parallel there is with financial services, it was mm. that way, but now as more and more people can contribute and more and more people build pieces that people can build upon, yeah, well, I think it kind of democratizes access. The really. conversation about blockchain is exactly that. It's like, why do we have a central bank? Well, it's like you need to have a trustable ledger. Well, if blockchain technology gives you a visible ledger, a visible way of being able to, to track what's going on, then you don't necessarily need that central bank anymore. And, and again, like, why do we have money? Well, we need to be able to trade with each other. Well, then it doesn't have to be money, does it? It could be cell phone minutes. So as soon as you start having a more open conversation, you get no ideas. And then the bigger thing yet is saying, if you have conversations where you're inviting people from around the world, you learn about other people's problems and there's ways in which you might be able to help them. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking now about your analogy about a cell phone with solar panels. What is the banking analogy? Obviously, cell phone with ledgers attached to it or something like that. But it, there's something about that cheap experimentation. Anyway, last question then, I guess. Sure. Uh, kind of a personal question, really. What, what would you like from a bank? What would, you know, what would, be, what would be the Singularity University's uh, view on how, or, or I should better say, how to create the, a future bank? And I think this is an area that we focus on. We focus on global grand challenges. And of course, when you look at the number of people in the world today who are underbanked or who have no banking at all, and of course, there's not just the, you know, why do you need a bank, but what, you know, what do bank accounts provide for you? What does having sort of contracts and land tender and all of the rest of it, what does that provide to you? And so we're saying, you know, how do we help the people, the groups who are building these services around the world? How can we help them? And then also say, how can we help people who have tools and technologies see that what they're building might apply to these other situations and connect them together? I don't think SU is going to be coming up with new ideas, but we've created a place where these, these new ideas can be encouraged, where people can meet each other. You know, look, when you're making suggestions to other people, you might be making pretty silly suggestions, and you have to practice getting through that. And as I said earlier, the best way to learn to contribute questions when, when you're a beginner is to, at other times, be that expert listening to suggestions. 
and you're trading back and forth. And your ability to create an environment where people can trade back and forth with each other, be, be the beginner, be the expert at different times, that can be done anywhere. Uh, it's being done right here, so it's, it's quite fun. Well, thank you very much for your time. It was great. Yeah, glad to talk to you. And that's it for today's show. Thanks to all of our wonderful interviewees. We'll be back next week with more insights. And don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes and tell all of your friends about Fintech Insider. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.